Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin, today joined by James Fox, and we are pleased also to have Jim Callis with us at Jim Callis MLB on Twitter. He's a senior writer for MLB Pipeline, MLB.com. You can also find him on MLB Network doing all things prospect related, but specifically, Jim, we're going to talk to you today about some Chicago White Sox baseball, some prospects, where they rank in the system, and as well as where the White Sox system ranks across all 30 major league teams. First, though, of course, we're all dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, and obviously it impacts you and what you do. Baseball is at a standstill, and really the world is as well. And of course, like we said, it, it impacts everything. And It impacts what you're trying to do, scouting these prospects, writing about the players in spring camp, likely those who are coming up and making their debut, uh, assumedly on the 26th of March, but obviously that's out the window. So how has this really impacted what you do for a living, Jim? Not too much yet. I mean, I I do work a lot out of my house, so I mean, that's easy enough to to continue Mm. to do so. Um, you know, I was set to go to Arizona for spring training for like our last leg of our spring training reports and MLB Network's 30 for 30 coverage uh, on Monday the 16th. I was supposed to fly down and I'll, I'll still do those reports. I'll just do them over the phone so I can do that. I was supposed to go to the National High School Invitational at the end of the month in, in Cary, North Carolina. And that's been canceled, and and that's gone. But besides that, after that, I probably wouldn't have traveled anywhere for for anywhere for any great duration for probably, you know, really until the draft. Um, so that won't change too much. Um, you know, for now, we'll we'll finish up doing our 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 team by team kind of you know what's going on on the minor league side during spring training uh, reports. Although they'll now be in past tense instead of <laughs> present tense, like they normally would have been. And then I think our plan, at least at the MLB pipeline part of things, is to, um, you know, I, I, I think we'll dive into the draft like we normally would have at the end of spring training. And, you know, with the kind of the assumption that there aren't going to be any more games, teams have gotten all the looks they're going to have at players. So we might as well start talking about that stuff. And, you know, obviously if there are more games somehow, which I, I don't think is really going to be the case, um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll change the list again like we always do. But, you know, I, I would say we'll we'll kind of do a lot of what we normally would do, minus, you know, reporting on what's going on, you know, minor league happenings once the minor league season started. But I think it'll be kind of like business as usual for us, probably for the next four or five weeks. With with like I said, wrapping up our spring reports and the draft, and then <laughs> who knows at that point? Because I I mean, it doesn't seem like right now like we're going to be back to normal by May first uh, or anything like that. So so we'll see. And then on a a personal level, uh, two, two of my four kids, I had a son in graduate school and a daughter in a gap year program. We're actually in the United Kingdom when um, our, uh, our peerless leader announced that all flights, you know, nobody would be allowed into the U.S. Uh, after Friday and, and misspoke on Wednesday night. So we uh, had to work to get them back and, and they got it back okay. And I'm actually uh, still in the process. My, my son, who's a graduate student, has been over there for a couple of years and he's got a golden retriever over there and we're trying to bring the golden retriever home. So that's, that's, oh that's gosh. our, uh, you know, we, we, we have come in our companies to help you do that. I mean, we, you work with those companies, you know, in normal times too, but uh, you know, we're, we're recording this on a Tuesday and, 
If everything goes according to plan, he will fly to Dallas on Friday. He can't, he can't fly direct, and then he'll fly from Dallas to Chicago on Saturday. So hopefully we will repatriate my, my son's golden retriever, Cooper, um, by the end of this week. Before we get into some of the White Sox stuff, I was gonna. I had a couple of draft things for you. So back at the fan convention, Mike Shirley kind of indicated that they'd be more prep focused, and we've heard, you know, through some sources here at Future Sox, like a, you know, that the White Sox like Texas right-hander Jared Kelly, Ed Howard, you know, is local and he shares like a agent or a representative with Tim Anderson, so they know him pretty well. Does something like that make sense to you this year for the White Sox, or do you think they should? maybe lean towards one of those like quick moving college starters since there's so many of them. Um, well, the answer to the first part of the question, I mean, just in general, I like, you know, logically don't know what's going to happen with the draft. I'm, I'm going to assume it won't be in Omaha since there's no college world series this year. Um, I do think a lot of, a lot of people have been trying to guess on the internet. I do think from talking to people that there's a, there's still a good chance it could still be it's regular time. You know, so it doesn't mess up, you know, the kind of scouting for the 2000, 21 draft, which you would normally do during the summer. So we'll have to wait and see on that. You know, I, I, honestly, I think it's fine to be, you know, if be more prep oriented means, you know, being more willing to consider high school players. I think that's fine. And I do think under Nick Hostetler, I, I don't think that it was Nick was like, Nick personally was a college heavy guy. I think he was following his marching orders and the, and the, the, the White Sox, I think in recent years have tried to, after, not having a very analytical approach to things, trying to show that, hey, we are more analytical. And, you know, maybe they did that in the draft and took a lot of college performers. You know, they did take a couple of high school pitchers early next year. Um, if it's – I would, I mean, I, I wouldn't take high school players just for the sake of taking high school players. I mean, I think especially in the first round, you have to take the guy you think is the best available player. And I would never rule out any, any demographic. You know, a lot of teams – or I shouldn't say a lot, but like their teams are skittish of high school right-handers in the first round. But if you think a high school right-hander is the best player on the board at 11, you know, like if Jared Kelly was there, then, then take him. I I really don't think that the, the the what's going on with the coronavirus and you know teams were told yesterday no scouting no, you know of any kind. I mean there aren't games to watch, but don't work out players. No scouting efforts until further notice. Nobody knows what the draft is going to be. But I, I do think the average fan doesn't necessarily understand, you know, these teams, you know, got a lot of looks at players last summer through summer college leagues, Team USA, Cape Cod, all these high school showcases. You know, here in Chicago, we have the Under Armour All-America game. They had a, a Major League Baseball run uh, showcase league that, that went on for three weeks for the first time last year. Um, you know, they, they have the, the World Wood Bat Association World Championship in Jupiter every fall where there's, there's thousands of players. And so teams, even though, you know, the season was cut short, you know, you didn't, some of the kids' high school seasons hadn't even begun. The college season ended after four weeks. All that stuff's true, but you still, they got a lot of looks. And most of the guys I've talked to, or I mean, I, I let me rephrase it. everybody I've talked to, and I haven't ta- tried to talk to anywhere close to all 30 teams, but I've talked to five or six scouting directors, and they've all said, we're ready to go. Like if they had to draft tomorrow, like they've gotten, you know, would you wish you had more looks? Yes. But you know, you, you, you know, everybody, you know, has gotten, you know, looked, looks at guys last summer. They've, they've built up scouting databases on players um, and they'd be ready to go. So I, I, I don't think that even though like this is, you know, the most unique circumstances the draft has ever faced with the coronavirus, that, that teams are really going to do much differently. I mean, there may be a couple, I think for most teams, they're proceeding business as usual. If this is all we get, 
this is all we get. And if we draft in June, we'll draft in June. So I, I don't think, you know, and I haven't talked to the White Sox specifically, but like, I, I don't think what's going on is really going to affect too many teams. Like, okay, we're going to do this a little bit differently and maybe play it safer because we got fewer looks at, at the high school guys or whatever. I think the vast majority of teams, from what I can tell, you know, are, you know, if you like high school players, then you're still going to like them. And if you like college play, you know, people are still, I think, going to draft the way they would have drafted anyway. They just have less information to go on than usual. Do you think the White Sox are at any advantage because they're one of the teams with like a bigger, like actual scouting staff than some of the other teams that have cut scouts? Yeah, I mean, it should be. I mean, I've always thought, I mean, it's easy for me to say because I don't have to spend the money. But, you know, a number of teams have tried to cut back on scouts to save money. And it's not like scouts make a ton of money either. I've always thought that, like, and not that I will ever get this opportunity, but if I ran a team or owned a team, I would want a bigger staff. Like, like instead of, you know, maybe having, you know, two scouts divide up California and two scouts divide up Texas, why not, you know, double my scouting staff and give people smaller areas they could cover more thoroughly. But, yeah, I mean, to me... I mean, you know, the quality of your scouts depend, you know, individual scouts depends too, but I, I would view having more scouts as a definite advantage than over having fewer scouts. When they took Bryce Bush in the 33rd round a couple of years ago, Nick Hostetler basically told us, you know, they just like went off the area scouts recommendation and, you know, gave him 290,000 or whatever. And the way the White Sox looked at it was like, if we can't trust an area scout with 290K, they shouldn't be scouting for them. So, but when we talked to Bryce Bush, he kind of said, you know, he had seen scouts from 20 teams and we had heard that nobody, like a lot of teams wouldn't pull the trigger on something like that without their big decision makers, like seeing a kid and the White Sox would. So I don't know, maybe, maybe that could help him out in a process like this. Yeah. I mean, with Bryce, I mean, I think part of what it was is he was going, I want to see maybe Mississippi State. I know he was going to an SEC school and I think it was just a signability thing where, and this happens sometimes, word gets out, you know, and I don't know if it was erroneous or he said something to somebody and it spread, or if you know his agent said somebody, but the uh, the the thinking, the consensus in baseball was, uh, you know, interesting guy, but he's not going to sign for you know for what you'd be willing to pay him, you wouldn't be able to sign him. And then I think that changed late in the summer, and the White Sox knew that, and maybe other teams didn't. Um, I don't know if it's so much that the decision made, like decision makers wouldn't trust their area scouts so much, as the White Sox had an inkling, hey, this guy might sign for under 300,000 and everybody else thought like, there's no way you're going to sign this kid away from an SEC school. But yeah, I mean, but, but, and that almost, to me, to be honest, that I almost think having more scouts isn't so, I mean, yeah, it gets you more looks at players. You know, if you could, you know, you have a smaller area to cover, but I think you also get to know the players better and you get a better sense for the things that the data can't tell you, you know, you, you know, the exit velocity and, and stats can't necessarily tell you. You get a better idea of his makeup. And, and like, you know, in this case, you know, the White Sox area guy obviously, you know, had a much better sense of what it was going to take Bryce Bush uh, than anybody else, you know, than other teams did, or he wouldn't have gone in, in the 33rd round. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I do think that can, that, that can definitely be, that can definitely be an advantage. So one more thing before we get into some of the individual prospects, you guys rank the White Sox system at number 11, um, over at MLB Pipeline, I think that seems like a pretty fair ranking. Um, if you were choosing systems, though, um, you've you've kind of talked about taking upside in the past. Would you would you take, you know, the White Sox system because of like those first four guys, like over maybe a system with more depth, like you you personally? 
Yeah, I might. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I ran, we voted individually. I ranked them tenth. Um, you know, personally, so I had them one spot higher than than what our consensus rankings came out to be. You know, that said, yeah, I mean, you could certainly make a case. You know, they have four. I think it's the most top-heavy system in baseball. I mean, they've got four of the top 40 prospects on our top 100 list, and then, and then there's a pretty big drop-off. Um, so, but, yeah, I think you could argue, you know, Robert, Vaughn, Kopech, Madrigal. That, yeah, you, you could, you know, in terms of, you know, teams that have a better top four, like you can maybe argue the Tigers – you know, would be in that discussion with Casey Mize and Matt Manning and Riley Green, Tarek Skubal. And that might be about it. You know, I, I think they have the – I don't think there's a team that has four prospects ranked higher than that. So, yeah, I think you can make the case that if you didn't care about depth and you just want, you know, went for potential superstars, you could take them significantly higher than that. Jim, there's something that I wanted to touch on related to the younger names, uh, the prep players coming out of high school. And the White Sox have been pretty aggressive, I mean, even going back to last year immediately. And the two names that come to mind are Andrew Dahlquist and Matthew Thompson, but also a guy like DJ Gladney in the 16th round. Of course, the White Sox are paying overslot value for these players to, you know, to get them to sign. But I always think it's so fascinating to see high school players with all of this talent decide to sign with a major league club as opposed to going to college. What's your take on that? I guess it's more on a on a case-by-case basis, but I think the White Sox did a very good job of locking down those three specifically. Yeah, I mean, I know personally I have a lot of respect for college baseball. And for my kid, I'd probably want – I mean, not that I had a kid who was talented enough to get drafted by major league baseball, but, like, I'd want him to go to college and develop. Like, I, I'd rather have my kid grow up in college and grow up riding a bus around the minor leagues. But that said, um, you know, it's an individual decision, and it's different. I mean, I, I think that you're talking about two different kind of circumstances there. With, with Thompson and Dahlquist and the bonuses they got, you know, th- those guys were going to sign. I mean, not that you know Thompson got, I think, what was it, two point one million dollars, and Dahlquist got two million. You know, look, there's some guys who will turn that down. You know, Al Leiter's kid Jack did, and he's at Vanderbilt. But like, you know, most of the time, if you offer a kid that much money, he's going to sign. So I, I don't think there there was that big of a decision. You know, with Gladney, who 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 was over slot, and he got two hundred twenty five thousand dollars in sixteenth round. You know, that's that, that's a tougher decision. You know, he's going to Eastern Kentucky. You know, it's not like he was going to an SEC school. And again, I think that's a good job by the area scout being able to figure out. Because, I mean, again, if you're paying the guy over slot, you got to fit him into your bonus pool. Um, you know, and knowing that, look, you know, we, we can sign this guy for, for, for this amount of money. I mean, he's interesting. I mean, he he I, I ultimately did not put him on our top 30 prospects list. He'd probably be in the 31 to 35 range for me. Um, you know, very interesting power, young kid. He also struck out 82 times in 50 games last year. So huge strikeout rate over 40%. Um, and, and that, you know, in, in the Arizona league. And so my attitude was, ah, that, that, that strikeout rate concerns me a little bit. I'll, I'll wait and see what happens with him next year. But, but it, you know, certainly some interesting power potential there. As we move away from the younger guys who need a little bit of time to develop in the White Sox system, I want to fast forward a little bit to Luis Robert, a guy who's ready to go. What concerns do you have about Luis Robert? Because when I saw him, he was ultra aggressive, and there are some holes in his swing where it could get exposed at the big league level, of course, initially across his career. But we know the physical tools are there. What do you think, if anything, can stop him from being a legitimate star? 
Yeah, I, I think, it, I mean, if there is something, it would be that, that, that strike zone management. I mean, you know, in terms of tools, you know, it, it's electric. I mean, I thought when they signed him, he, he, he always kind of reminded me of a, of Yohan, you know, like a right-handed outfield version of Yohan Mankata. I, I thought he was that kind of athlete. Um, you know, I think his combination of, of bat speed and foot speed, there aren't too many guys who can, can match that. It's huge power. You know, it, it's kind of crazy because, you know, a, a year ago or, or two years ago, I guess now at this point, 2018, I mean, he was hurt a lot. He didn't even hit a home run during the minor league season. Um, he started to turn on the, in the Arizona Fall League, and he obviously had a great year last year, 30-30, led the minors in total bases, you know, first – I think he was the youngest minor, the 30-30 player in the minors since 1999, and the first 30-30 guy with 300 total bases in a season since 1961. And you know, I just think, that, you know, if there's a question about him, it would be that strike zone management. I mean, he he struck out almost five times as much as he walked last year. Really didn't walk much at all, and that would be the the one question you'd have. But but in everything else, I mean, it's you know, I think you take a casual fan to a game. And show them Luis Robert, and they'd be able to figure out, you know, yeah, that guy's, you know, one of the more talented guys on the field. You guys have Andrew Vaughn ranked, you know, really high, just like kind of everybody else does. You know, with that first base, right, right profile, you know, he's not like one of these big hulking sluggers. He's, you know, he's like 5'11. So can you talk about just why you like Andrew Vaughn so much as a prospect? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it's very simple. I mean, this guy's going to hit. I mean, if he doesn't hit, I think everybody will be shocked. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, you'd rather have you, you know, lefty hitting first baseman, and there isn't really any defensive value besides first base. Um, but I mean, this guy's one of the best college hitters in years. There haven't been too many guys with it was his with his ability to hit for power, hit for average, control the strike zone. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I'm just trying like offensively, like, I don't think there's a hole in his game. I mean, the biggest criticism, like we just alluded to is like, eh, wish he hit left-handed maybe, but like, I don't know what hole there is in his offensive game. And I, I really think, I mean, had, had this been a normal season and had the White Sox not gone out and, and re-signed to Brayu and brought in Edwin Encarnacion, Andrew Vaughn could have been in the big leagues this year too. And I mean, small sample size, but you know, and I don't read too much really in his spring training stats, but he looked great in spring training too. He did. And they were, they were planning on sending him to Birmingham too, which I'm sure they probably still will whenever that takes place. Yeah, no, I mean, it, I mean, he, he already played in high class. A. I don't see any reason he couldn't handle double a next guy. I'd like to touch on real quick is Nick magical. And over at MLB pipeline, you guys are high on magical. What do you think is his ceiling? What do you think is his floor? And why do you believe that, you know, he could translate to be such a consistent player at the big league level? Yeah, he, I'll admit, I mean, I say this all the time. He confounds me because I have a hard time figuring out exactly what I think he's going to be. I mean, I do think he's the best contact hitter in the minor leagues. You know, he struck out 3%, uh, 3% of his plate appearances last year. You know, Wander Franco was in second place at more than twice that, 7%. Um he just has, you know, he has the best bat on bat to ball skills in, in the minors. Now the question is, I mean, with his approach, it's a very flat swing. It's a lot of ground balls, um, and because he puts the bat on the ball so easily, I mean, there's there, there's not a lot of power and there's not a lot of walks. I mean, he he's kind of that rare guy who most of his offensive contribution is, is going to come from his batting average. Um, I, I think his floor is very very high. Like I'll I'll be shocked. Yeah, I think of all the guys on our top 100 list, 
he'd be, you know, in the top four or five, like guys, you, you know, you feel good are going to be at least a big league regular. I, I don't see any way this guy isn't say a 275 hitter who plays a really good second base. Um, you know, he could steal a few bases, you know, you know, I, I think that's the floor. You know, is he going to be a star? I just got to see how the power develops because like I said, I, I do like him, you know, but I, I think what he did last year, I mean, he, he I mean, he, you know, his time in the minors, he's played roughly a, a full season of games and he's a career 309 hitter with an ops at 769. Like, I mean, this is a guy who could hit over 300 and not get to you know, 800 ops. Um, so like I said, he, he, he confounds me. Like he, he, he almost like he, he, he puts the bat on the ball just so easily that, you know, he, he just doesn't work, to, you know, deep, you know, he doesn't foul pitches off and work deep counts. Like, he, if he swings, he's putting the ball in play. And, and just with it, with that approach, you know, it just does not lead to a lot of walks or a lot of extra base hits. So another interesting guy in the White Sox system is another, it's another one of these guys that was a Wisconsin uh, prep player that seemingly got better as a pro, and that's uh, former fifth-rounder Jonathan Stever. So do you think Stever stays as a starting pitcher long-term, or do you think he's a better fit in relief? No, I, I think he does. I mean, I think he throws enough strikes. Um, he's, you know, he's not. You know, he's, he's got a strong build. I mean, he's not 6'6", or, you know, one of these hulking monsters. But, I mean, he's an athletic guy. He, he throws a lot of strikes. He's, he's got, you know, four pitches. So, yeah, I think he's a definite starter. And, you know, and that was, you know, it's interesting because I, I liked him. I think, I know we ranked him, you know, higher than where he went in the draft. And, you know, back in 2018 when he went in the fifth round. And, you know, he got he got roughed up in the NCAA playoffs. And I think there were some minor, phys, minor physical concerns. Yeah, I thought he was more of going to be like a third-round guy. And, and he dropped to the fifth round. And, you know, he, his stuff is ticked up some in pro ball and, you know, yeah, I mean, but I, I see all the ingredients. I mean, he throws a lot of strikes and he, and he commands his fastball. And I mean, he's got a spike curveball, which is usually a pitch that's notoriously difficult to control, and he controls it better than most. So I think he's a definite starter. Jim, really good stuff. A couple more. Don't want to keep you too long here. Uh, really enjoying the conversation. I, I want sure. to ask you about Jake Berger because, well, he hasn't played since 2017. <laughs> you rupture your Achilles twice. You know, I that has to affect your psyche, right? I mean, there's got to be some sort of mental hurdle that Berger has to get over before really seriously taking like the physical approach back, hopefully to the major leagues. Ascent, like that's obviously the ultimate goal. But with all that being said, where is Jake Berger in your mind among the White Sox system? I know you guys are still high on him uh, among the White Sox prospects here. Um, could you just elaborate on on Jake Berger and your thoughts? Yeah, I like Jake Berger a lot coming out of the draft. I, I, for whatever reason, have a soft spot for the Missouri State program. I think those guys do a great job. I, I thought Jake, you know, obviously the power is what attracted the White Sox. And if you look at him, he's kind of burly and thick, but he, he's he's a better athlete than I think he gets credit for. I mean, he could show you average speed, and, you know, out of the batter's box, even quicker than that underway. And I, I thought he could play good third base. And we just don't know, like you know, because he's lost two years. I mean, it's you know, it's funny when we released the list. I had some Twitter, you know, you know, people, you know, like, hey, how can you have Jake Berger fifteen when he hasn't played in two years? And it's like, well, you know, I mean, it's not like he lost the leg. I mean, he had repeated leg injuries, but you know, theoretically, he's going to come back. I mean, I, I do think there's upside. Like, I, I do think, and this is a big if because we just don't know. But let's say he comes back and he's healthy this year, even if he loses half a step, speed wasn't a big part of the game. But let's just say Jake Berger's healthy. 
And, you know, and let's assume that, you know, Louis, you know, let's assume we have enough of a season to where Luis Robert, Michael Kopech, and Nick Madrigal all graduate off the list because they play in Chicago. I think Jake Berger, you know, if he comes back healthy this year, could easily rank in the top three or four or five prospects in the system. But again, that's a huge if. That's if he comes back healthy this year. Dane Dunning. Dane Dunning is a guy that's similar uh, in the effect that we haven't really seen him in action. Of course, dealing with with his arm injury and the White Sox shut him down last year and even the year prior, uh, halfway through the season. Now, like personally, I've never seen Dane Dunning pitch ever. Right? Um, what can you tell me about Dane Dunning and, and how high is his ceiling when healthy? Yeah, you know, he's. I mean, I, I thought before he got hurt, you know, and, and injuries always are you know, can take guys out. I, mean, I thought he had the highest floor of any of their pitchers because, I mean, he's not going to Michael Kopech you and just overwhelm you with stuff. But, I mean, his stuff's, you know, pretty good. I mean, it's more of a – his fastball is more, uh, you know, a plus pitch because of sink and command. Um, he made a lot of progress with the curveball, got a pretty good slider too. He's got a feel for changeup. He can locate his pitches where he wants. Um, you know, if he, like a lot of guys, comes back for Tommy John surgery throwing – even a little bit harder than before, um, you know, he could really make a jump. Um, so I, 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 you know, I think there's, there's, there's a chance, you know, again, I mean, we're assuming health and we haven't really seen him on the mound in a while, but you know, if, if he can, you know, reclaim even just the stuff he had, you know, I think he could wind up, you know, you know, being in the middle of the White Sox rotation someday. Jim, I know you haven't seen a lot of the guys that were in the Dominican Summer League that haven't quite made it stateside yet, but in your rankings, um, you have shortstop Yolbert Sanchez, their Cuban signing last year, and then the Panamanian uh, Benjamin Bailey. So even if you if you maybe haven't seen those guys personally, is there anything you've heard like from scouts or evaluators that led you to rank them on your top 30? Yeah, I mean, with, with Sanchez... Um, you know, I think it's the defense. Like, I, I mean, there are people, you know, who will tell you, oh, he could play in the big leagues right now defensively. I mean, very smooth shortstop. He's got all the tools. You know, I think the question is, you know, how much is he going to hit? Um, you know, like the back could be a little bit light. You know, it's like a lot of these these Cuban defectors wind up playing their, you know, Robert did the same thing in the Dominican Summer League for tax purposes. You know, he, I mean, he's, Sanchez is 23 now. Um, you know, he's 22 last summer, so he didn't need to be in that league. But it's not like he really tore up the tore up the DSL, uh, you know, in, in terms of driving the ball. I mean, he he was fine. Um, you know, but he he's one of the better defenders in the system. And and Bailey, you know, he's just a guy who's a specimen, six four, two fifteen. You know, has you know some intriguing plate discipline for for a kid who who just turned 18 after the season. Uh, you know, he, you know, it's interesting. I, I think he's more of a a hitter than a slugger right now, but you can, you could see some power potential in there. You know, he's so physical, um, you know, probably more of a left fielder in the long run, but you know, again, you know, you're right. I mean, I, I've never seen Benjamin Bailey or, or Robert Sanchez, but a lot of guys do speak highly of, of his offensive upside. Last one for you, Jim, and we will let you go. Thanks so much. Of course. Uh, so pipeline ranked Yerman Mercedes at number 25 on the White Sox list. And we love following Yerman Mercedes here especially what he was able to put together last year. And then this spring, four home runs, he was just driving the ball over, all over the ballpark. What is it about Yermer Mercedes and his profile? Can he translate anywhere defensively? What do you think the White Sox are going to do with him? Well, I, I do think it, it's tough because, I mean, the 26th man helps him. Although they also have, you know, 
they don't have, you know, they have other sluggers who are somewhat defensively challenged behind the plate. In, in definitely Zach Collins and Sibby Zavala kind of fits that profile too, and they're all kind of ready for you know some kind of big league, you know, time this year. But you know he's, I mean it's he's he's just a tough guy to figure out. I mean he he's hit everywhere he's gone the minors. You know he's 27 years old or yeah he's 27 now. He might be the oldest player on any of our top 30 lists. I, I mean maybe we have another 27 year old. I have to check that, but he might be the oldest guy in the list and. You know, I mean, he he hits the ball hard to all fields. You know, he he's he's right-handed, so you know, I mean, he doesn't have the platoon advantage in that regard. He's okay against righties. He's got a strong arm, but he's just he's not a very good receiver. I know the White Sox, I think, feel like he gets a little more harshly judged than he deserves, and he does well in their framing metrics. And like a lot of catchers, I mean, he just can't run. So like, I don't even know where else you could put him. Um, you know, maybe you play him at first base a little bit, but he's not going to cover much ground. He played some third in the minors last year, but I mean, he's got basically fall down range at third. I mean, uh, you know, you can kind of <laughs> draw a circle around him and that's his range at third base. So it's just, it's, it's a, it's a tough profile. I mean, great spring, um, would be kind of cool if he, you know, he, I mean, he's on the 40 man roster, so it's easy enough to promote him to the big leagues, but you know, it's, I mean, this is a guy who, you know, going into last year, had I think what twelve games of experience in Double A. You know, and he and he played great in the minors, and you know the ball was jacked up, so he went off in Triple A. But you know, he's he's interesting. I, I don't think this guy's ever going to be a regular, but I you know it's you, you gotta have to root for a guy. It took him eight years to make a forty man roster. You know, I'd love to see him get an opportunity in the big leagues at some point this year. Awesome, Jim. Thanks so much for taking the time. We'll end it with that. Good luck with everything moving forward. I hope uh, your golden retriever makes it home. You don't have to jump through too too many hurdles, and and hopefully, of course, your family is uh, healthy and safe and sound. Yeah, well, thanks to you guys too. I mean, and same thing. I hope hope you guys are well and your families are well and everybody's safe. And uh, you know, it's uh, I'm sure people will enjoy. Uh, like you said, you guys will probably do more podcasts, but like give people something to listen to. Uh, you know, I mean, for White Sox, I mean, this is. I mean, obviously the coronavirus and, and everybody's health is of utmost importance. But I mean, this was shaping up to be a, a very interesting year for the White Sox. Um, so hopefully we can have a baseball season at some point and, and maybe they can end that playoff drought and, and, you know, have some of these prospects play key roles. That is Jim Callis of major league baseball pipeline on MLB.com senior writer, Jim, again, great stuff. You can follow him at Jim Callis MLB Don't be a stranger. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, no, it sounds good. Definitely. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, guys. For Jim Callis and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox podcast. You may subscribe to us anywhere. Podcasts are, I guess, streamed, right? (laughs) iTunes, Spotify, uh, all these other things. So, again, Jim Callis, awesome stuff. We will talk to you all and the listeners next time. For Jim and James, my name is Mike. Thanks for tuning in.